If we just had to live to survive, we would never contemplate what is good, what is heroic, what is praiseworthy, what is noble. We wouldn't have time to contemplate who is God, who am I to God. Leisure is the basis of culture. Entertainment time is what allows people to become better. It's the very thing that helps mold the soul. This is the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a good review. My guest today is screenwriter Zena Del Lowe. Zena has worked professionally in the entertainment industry for over 20 years as a writer, producer, director, actress, and story consultant. She's written award-winning screenplays, plays, and a number of articles on writing, religion, and trauma recovery. She's also written comic books, most recently Strawberry Shortcake by IDW Publishing, and is currently writing her very first novel. In March of 2020, Zena launched her podcast, The Storyteller's Mission with Zena Dello, which is designed to serve the whole artist, not just address how-to questions. This in turn led to the launch of The Storyteller's Mission online platform, where she offers advanced classes on writing as well as a variety of other services to storytellers. Zena is an Act One alum and a good friend, and I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Zena, welcome to the Act One podcast. It's good to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here, as always, with you, Jimmy. You're amazing. You know, you're a uh, you're an Act One alumni. You're, you're you're OG like me. You're old school Act One, um, and you actually uh, ran uh, the program for a while yourself. You were program director. So uh, let's start there. Um, your initial connection to Act One, like you, what what year did you go through the program? So I went through the program in 2000, which was year two. Year two, that's right. Mm -hmm. But I actually was an intern who assisted in the office in 1999. So I've been around since the very beginning. Yes, and I believe that's where we met because weren't you also, weren't you also, were you you a member of Actors Co-op? I was, indeed. That's how I heard about Act One, as I was at the Actors Co-op and when I heard about it, I went and talked to Barbara Nicolosi, who, much to my surprise, knew who I was because she'd seen me in Edith Stein. <laughs> and she was so funny. She was like, Zena, you should apply for this program. You've got connections, Luigi. And that's what she <laughs> said to me. So um, <clears throat> I have to say, applying to Act One and going through Act One is probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my entire life. Act One changed my life. I have been a fan of Act One. And honestly, the best training I've had came from Act One. And I was privileged to get to work under Barbara Nicolosi and what I like to refer to as the early golden age of Act One, because now we're in a second golden age under your leadership, Jimmy. But the The early- We're in the the platinum era. That's what I'm just That's right, right. The the OG golden age. Um, And- I learned so much, so much. And I got my very first paid writing gig out of Act One, uh, directly because of Act One. And I've been able to continue to get writer for hire gigs throughout um, my career. And, and, and I wouldn't have been able to do that without Act One. And then also I've taught, you know, I started 
teaching because I became the associate director of Act One. And so I started teaching some of the stuff that we were actually teaching during the program. It turned out the best way to recruit people was to give them a glimpse or a taste of what we actually do. And I've been teaching ever since. Because of that, I became an adjunct professor at a couple of colleges. I'm just now, recently, this fall, I will start teaching under Barbara again at Regent University. I'm officially an adjunct. So it's amazing how Act One has really shaped and influenced my entire life. Uh, that's really that's really cool. I, I, that, that's something that you don't hear often. And, and I know you and I have talked offline privately about some of the some of that, and it's always encouraging to hear. And I, I, uh, let's go back to that 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 moment when Barbara was talking to you. So you were an act. You were you were an actress. Now, were you pursuing a full time career as an actor at the time? Uh, were you considering screenwriting at the time? Was that even in the? Had you written before? Like, what was that transition like for you? That's a wonderful question. So. I was pursuing acting full-time. I didn't realize it, but I was a writer. And part of how that happened was, first of all, I got my degree in English. To me, it was just easy. I didn't make the connection that the fact that my teachers in college were saying, hey, you should submit that for this contest or that contest. I, I never made the connection that that meant I was a writer. I never made the connection that because I wrote my first, quote, novel in the fourth grade, that maybe I was a writer. Uh, it, never, it never computed because I thought I was just an actor. But what happened was at Actors Co-op, there was a phase where people were supposed to come with original scenes for some of the teachings, you know, some of the workshops. And so I started writing scenes for my fellow actors because I would have these wonderful ideas. And I just thought it was fun. But it turns out it was a gift. And Barbara was one of the first people who seemed to recognize that I had a gift for writing in a way that I, I always knew, but I didn't know. And it turned out part of the reason I was so fascinated about Act One is as an actor, I would audition for things and I would be like, Ugh, this is so bad. How do I make this good? <laughs> And I just couldn't find material. I mean, I wasn't, you know, at a high enough level to be able to have material coming to me that was truly stellar. So it was just hard to audition for these bad things. And that's what started making me think, I could do better than this. Geez, if this is what's out there, I can do better than this. And I wasn't wrong. And I do believe that there is something about if you're an actor, you approach material from a character point of view. You're thinking first as the character, which I do think can, it doesn't always, but it can give you an advantage because characters are what drive a story. It's not about high concept. It's not about all of those fancy, fancy things. Now, it can be, you can be like creating new types of video or new types of systems to actually capture particular scenes that are too brilliant for you to use the normal kind of equipment that's available. You can do that. But really, a story stands or falls on the quality of the characters. So as an actor, it always comes down to the characters. And I think that it 
can give you a leg up in terms of just telling a good story. Do you, do you think, uh, we've heard from several people about this, and I'm just, do you think screenwriters should should study acting or take a few acting classes? And Absolutely. I mean, of course, I'm biased, right? I'm biased. But I recently taught at um, a Christian writers conference called The Well. I actually taught improv for writers. Yeah. That's what I was teaching. And the reason is because, see, what tends to happen to writers is they're always in their head, right? They're they're not in their bodies. Right. right but right. characters are in their bodies. And as writers, we become better able to capture true human behavior, true human motivations, true human choices when we can sort of embody those characters. So to me, it's about helping the writer get back into the body and figuring out, you know, even knowing how to describe a character's emotions, since you can't tell us, oh, they're sad, you can feel it and you can describe it in a way that you're showing it instead of telling it. So I think it just makes them better um, how do you, what would you say? It, it makes them better judges of humanity, but it makes them better able to represent humanity in story form, which ultimately helps the story be better. And the audience resonates with that. You know, you, you started out your writing career and, um, and you talked about kind of like how act one and kind of through Barbara's encouragement that, that kind of got you into pursuing it professionally. When did when did you fall in love with it? When did it when did it become something that you were like, wait a second, I'm not just kind of good at this. I actually I actually want to I actually want to spend my life it. doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I can tell you. So I was I so I went through Act One in 2000, and you know, really, I, I knew very, very little about actual screenwriting. I, I'd never encountered the format before, really. I mean, I guess I'd read some sides, but it had never really computed to me. I was maybe kind of dumb, I guess. Uh, but I went through the program, was learning all those things, and I wasn't sure where I fit on the scale because there were some people in my class. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, they've been thinking about this kind of thing for years. They're so good. I'm so far behind. And I wasn't sure where I fell. Well, eventually there was a production company that came along and said, hey, we're trying to do these three sort of after school specials. Can you send us some of your best students to pitch? And we're inviting other schools in the area for students to pitch their projects. We're going to pick three. So I was one chosen by act one to pitch. And I think there, you know, there were quite a few of us, maybe 20, 30 of us got to pitch, but I was one of them. Well, and then they had maybe, you know, 70 people from other programs. I'm not exactly sure, but out of all the people pitching, I, one of my projects got chosen to be developed into this after-school special. So I got picked. So I got to write my story that I had devised based on what their needs were. And I wrote it. And it was a 30-minute, like I said, sort of a back-to-school special. Well, it, first of all, I loved it. I loved writing it, but I still didn't love it yet. I mean, it was just like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. I fell in love the day that I was invited to go on the set 
and they were filming what I wrote. And I walked on to the set and I, you know, as an actor at that point, I'd done some commercial. I'd had a couple of national commercials. I'd also done a guest star on a soap opera, but I hadn't ever been like on a film set. Um, I hadn't ever been on something like that. It was, I just hadn't. And so when I, I was unfamiliar with it, but when I walked onto that set and there were, you know, 50 people in different departments all there trying to realize what I had written on the page. Oh my gosh, the reality of what I was doing and the power of what a storyteller does and the amazingness that is all of these other departments are there to try to realize what you wrote on the page. I thought, oh my gosh, I don't ever want to do anything else. It was amazing. And part of what I realized on that day is that that's what it had always been about for me. But I hadn't realized the true power of being a storyteller was being in the writer position. See, as an actor, I was just regurgitating somebody else's words. But as the writer, I was impacting culture at the base core level. I was the one creating the material that the actors would regurgitate. I was the one who had the power. And all of a sudden it fell into place. I mean, I guess that makes me sound a little power hungry, but, (laughs) but it was the, the idea that I could actually make a difference, that I could use storytelling, which I had always loved to actually make an impact. Oh, Jimmy, it was one of the best days of my career at that moment of being on that set. That's, 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 a, that's a really, really cool. I, I, I just want to uh, clarify to people, um, if for some reason you're listening to this podcast and you hear snoring, that's not me being bored by what is in the and falling and falling asleep in the interview. Um, that is her precious dog. Um, people think, man, Jimmy's so rude. He, he falls asleep whenever Zena's talking. Um, uh, do you want to introduce people to your dog? Um, no, sure. Um, this is little Lulu. She goes with me everywhere. And I have a podcast, The Storyteller's Mission with Zena Del Lowe. And when I was initially starting out that podcast, my little dog would snore in the background and I would try everything to try to block out these snores. I couldn't do it. And if I put her in another room, she'd just claw at the door and that was worse. So I finally just sort of owned it. Well, it turns out she's become part of my brand. People love listening to my little dog in the background. Now, it's hopefully subtle and not too distracting, but I find that it's very comforting and she is, she's just a part of, if I'm there, then she's there too. So we're a team and she's always snoring. There you go. Okay. That's Lou. And she's a cutie pie. What, I can't remember. What kind of dog is she? She is a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel. Yeah. I knew it was a Spaniel, but a King Charles Cavalier. Well, wow, that's very specific. Wow. I know it's a very fancy name. It's the same kind of dog in Lady and the Tramp. Only she's oh different. yeah, that's right. She does look like the dog. Yes, she's a sweetheart. Um, did you grow up in a big family? Do you, do you come from a a family of artists and performers? And um, what, what what kind of a 
what was it like growing up for you? So I grew up in Montana, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, in fact, we only got two television shows uh, growing up. That's all we could get. I know that seems so foreign what to so young people. What were uh, they? Uh, I watched Little House on the Prairie. I'm sorry, let me rephrase. We got two channels, but I was only allowed to watch two television programs. So I watched Little House on the Prairie and Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then when I got a little older, I switched to uh, MASH and Knots Landing. So those were my two shows. So like I'm one of those people that actually missed out on all of the um, Marsha, 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 the Brady Bunch stuff. And I mean, I just didn't get to watch a lot of TV growing up because we didn't have it. I lived in the country. No, nobody in my family knew anything about the entertainment industry. In fact, that was one of the things that's so hard um, from my generation is when I moved out here to Hollywood, I always knew, I, I always knew this is what I had to do. I had to work in the entertainment industry somehow, but I knew no one and I knew nothing. I mean, I was about as dumb as they get. They talk about people falling off the turnip truck from Kansas. That might as well have been me. I was dumb as a box of rocks. And I shouldn't say dumb. I was ignorant. I knew nothing. So it it took a while for me to figure out how to even navigate this business. What do you do? How do you get in? How does it even work? It's actually quite a mystery for someone on the outside. And I didn't have people helping me with that because my family didn't know anything about it and they were just worried about me coming here, but nobody helped me. So there was a huge learning curve for me. Um, what started to make a difference for me, and I think this is something we can still learn from today, is when I started getting involved in different communities like Actors Co-op um, and of course Act One and any kind of acting group, really. I was involved in an improv group and I, I just started getting involved with those sorts of things, but you didn't know at first which ones to even do. Today, you could do research. It's a lot easier to find good places. Back then, you didn't have the internet. Uh, you didn't have the ability to search. Yes, I'm old. Um, so you had to you know, hear about it and how do you even hear about it? How do you even find the people that you can hear about it from? So it's, it's easier today to find that, to get involved in a good church and make sure you get established in a community. The fact of the matter is it's always been the same. You have to be involved in a community to be, I think, to really be grounded enough to be able to pursue it, but also to even know how to pursue it. You have to be able to ask people for advice. You have to be able to ask people for feedback and you have to be open to it. So it's very important that you find like-minded people that you can be involved with and actually establish relationships with, not to use them for industry connections, but people that you are actually in relationship with. Yeah. And that's what made all the difference. But I was kind of a late bloomer, to be honest with you, because it just took me so long to figure out how to navigate it. Did you... Were you supported by your family? I often find that a lot of people that come through Act One, including myself, um, you know, we're we're a bit of an oddity. From you know, we we're the 
the church that we grew up in. They don't quite know what to do with us. You know, they don't understand filmmakers. They, 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 you know, it's like, well, are you interested in music? You know, are you interested in singing? Are you interested in playing the piano or something like they kind of have a, they have a lot of churches kind of have categories in that sense that you fit in, but they don't have those other, an actor, a screenwriter, a director, a producer, like a filmmaker. They don't, they don't quite have categories for that. And so oftentimes uh, we're kind of the oddity. We're kind of the odd person out. We, we don't quite fit in sometimes. Was that a similar experience for you? Cause you said you grew up out in the country in Montana or was it um, very much like, a, Oh no, let's support Zena and all of her dreams and visions and passions and all that kind of stuff. No, I mean, of course, and, you know, things have changed quite a bit in the churches these days because now there's the media department, you know, and they do little videos, they do all that. So they've had to incorporate multimedia into everything that they do. So now there's much more importance in those different areas. But when I was growing up, there certainly wasn't any emphasis on that. And I think our church did a couple of plays and they were just dreadful. Uh, they were just awful. Um, you know, so really, if you wanted to be involved in anything performance oriented, you sang or you were in the choir or something like that. But they didn't have any emphasis on, you know, writing. I think partly, to be honest with you, part of the reason I came to L.A. to be an actor is because that's the only thing I really even knew. Because, again, I just didn't grow up around anything even remotely resembling anything in the entertainment entertainment industry. There was nobody who knew anything where I was. Um, my family supported me in the sense that they didn't discourage me from pursuing my dreams, but they didn't know how to help me. Right. Um, and they didn't know, they didn't know any more than I did. So, and I also think my mom was terrified and she had to have been terrified when she drove me out here to California and then turned around and drove home. I mean, this, her little girl, I wasn't even, how old was I? 19? 19. I mean, she must have been terrified. And see, in my family, you needed a college education. I mean, it was just assumed you would go to college. And I, and I did. And then I dropped out. And uh, the plan was, I was going to attend the American Academy of Dramatic Arts here in California, which I pursued on my own and got it accepted and all that. If I promised my mom, I would go back to college at some point. And so here I was 19, a college dropout, attending, attending a, a program that from her perspective had to be like a fake degree. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and in a way it was. And by the way, I did go back and get my college education. I went to Northridge. I got my BA. And then I went on to Biola to get my master's degree in apologetics, partly because navigating Christianity in the entertainment industry became a greater struggle because you encounter people with a lot of different beliefs. And I wanted to make sure I knew why I believed what I believed. And I realized I didn't know enough. I was ignorant of my own beliefs. And so I wanted to make sure it was true. So apologetics seemed like the right thing. All this to say, though, I was a college dropout, basically, when I moved here. And it had to be scary for my mom to leave me here. But she did it because she believed in me and because she wanted to support me. 
If I were going to do it all over again, I wouldn't have done it like that at all. I would have gone to a college that offered some sort of program um, so that I could be meeting people even as I'm training and I'm getting a college education. I think a college education is important, not because I'm doing anything particularly with that education that I got, but because you learn other kinds of skills and you learn life things that are important. By the time I went back, I got straight A's in every subject because I had been through the school of hard knocks and it was hard to, um, you know, be a telemarketer, which I did for a while. Boy, that that'll suck your soul right out. Uh, so it's, it was important for me to get a college education, but I'm not actually doing anything really in the area that I got my degree in. Right. Nevertheless, I'm better because of it. And I'm able to teach at colleges too. So that's I, good. I remember <laughs> you're saying the thing about your, uh, the, your mom, maybe probably thinking that that degree would be worthless. I, it reminds me of, my dad, when I was in college, I, I, I was, my major was a, a communication arts, um, and, and, uh, and a minor in religion. And I remember my dad calling me up one day, probably, I'm going to say maybe my junior year in college. <laughs> I remember my dad calling me up and saying, he used to call me James Edward, James Edward, um, what's the name of the degree you're going for again? And I said, uh, it's called communication arts. Why? He's like, mm, yeah, that's what I remember. And I was like, why? Why are you calling me? And he said, well, uh, so my dad worked construction. Um, and at this time, he was a foreman uh, on a construction site. And they were hiring new employees. And he said, well, a guy just came to me today. I just hired him. He, uh, he's a college graduate, four-year degree. And he said he can't find a job anywhere. He's just looking to get some sort of job. And when I asked him what his degree was in, he said, communication arts. <laughs> <laughs> my that dad was like are you are you sure you're still gonna you still you, you sure you want to still have that degree and i was like yes daddy i'm it's, but you know i mean your parents weren't exactly wrong <laughs> so funny do you remember the musical avenue q yes i have the puppets yes okay so there's a uh the main character in that starts out by saying what do you do with a BA in English? Right. What is my life going to be? Four years of college and plenty of knowledge has earned me this worthless degree. And I'm like, hey, that's me. I have a BA in English. <laughs> but it, the truth is, it isn't worthless because, first of all, it's story, right? I mean, literature, I, I read the best books ever written according to, you know, uh, the day and age at that time. It was the classics. And so I'm learning story, even at that level. So it isn't. And, and, and by the way, here's something really important for people to understand. Entertainment in the culture is not worthless. In fact, entertainment time is not throwaway time. It's actually the basis of culture. When you have leisure time in culture, it's what allows people to think about the bigger issues. If we just had to live to survive, we would never contemplate what is good, what is heroic, what is praiseworthy, what is noble. We, we wouldn't have time to contemplate who is God, who am I to God. Leisure is the basis of culture. And so entertainment time is what allows people 
to become better. It's the very thing that helps mold the soul. And furthermore, the most powerful tool that God has ever given us on this planet to help develop the most important character quality of human beings, which is empathy, is storytelling. That's where we learn to be empathetic of the them, because it's about learning about people who are not us and realizing that we have empathy for them. And that is a soul thing. That is something that happens in our soul and it makes us better people or it should. So you're not wasting your time. If you are a storyteller, you are arguably among the most dangerous and important career group of any career on this planet for what it's worth. The, uh, we've had several people that I think I've interviewed on this podcast that, ha- are, that are filmmakers that, are, that also went to seminary. Uh, and obviously, you know, that's the kind of people, <laughs> the circles that, that I run in, I suppose, <laughs> and especially Act One. But, you know, you mentioned, you, you, you said you didn't go to seminary, but you get a master's degree in apologetics. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious for you, um, how, has, how has that degree, how has your study of apologetics and scripture and, and, um, and worldviews and things like that, how has that, how has that benefited and informed you as a screenwriter? Oh, my goodness, far more than I ever would have realized. The most important duty that I have is to tell the truth. That's what I am here to do. I am here to tell the truth, to tell the truth about the world as it really is, and to tell the truth about my characters and what they're really, truly doing, what is true to humanity. And I am a good storyteller insofar as I tell the truth about what I see in this world. And this is, I believe, where Christians have gotten off track. We've gotten off track because we have adopted a philosophy of art that says that our stories are good as long as they don't include sex or language or violence. And in fact, they're good as long as they're positive, as long as they have happy endings. We just need to build people up and make people feel good. And that is not what we are called to do. We are called to tell the truth. And insofar as we are actually representing a true biblical worldview, then we are actually doing God's work, which means there is room in God's economy for Stories that aren't redeemed, for stories that are unhappy endings, for tragedies. There is so much more room. And in fact, God works in those types of things. And in fact, that's what we see in scripture. So having a background in apologetics has helped me to understand how to interpret every facet of this world that God has given us and to also examine its trustworthiness, its trueness, the veracity of a different discipline or a different approach. And because now I have that skill, I'm able to apply that also to storytelling and see how we accidentally, we don't do this on purpose. There's not some mass conspiracy out there to do this, but we 
often are perpetrating lies. We're actually spreading lies because we leave out true things because we're afraid of what that's going to do to people that are watching it. But the truth is when you just tell the truth about what these people do, God works in that. That's where he works. The truth, the truth, the truth. This is also, by the way, Christians aren't the only ones who do this. We we do this in this particular area by getting rid of, we, we try to sanitize or clean up or somehow, um, you know, make it innocuous and non-offensive. We try to do that to a lot of our art. And that is a particular type of violation of truth. But a lot of people in Hollywood also violate the truth, but they do it on the other side. They tell things that are horribly edgy and, you know, all these things where they think they're telling the truth, but the truth is it's not true because they're not telling the whole truth. They're not really showing consequences to particular types of actions or um, things that your characters are engaged in. If you're going to tell the truth, it's not that we show too much, it's that we show too little. We have to really show the consequences of particular actions that our characters might actually engage in. And a lot of times Hollywood doesn't do that. So they're guilty too of perpetrating lies. But the key here is always and forever, our job is to tell the truth. And apologetics has helped me to know what that is. And apologetics helps me to understand my stories from a biblical perspective. Because, and what I mean by that is a a true biblical worldview. Because a lot of my students, when I tell them that they are not confined to telling stories that just are positive or that lack sex, language, and violence, inevitably what happens is they then just tell stories that mirror what the world is already doing, but they're still lies and they don't recognize that. They don't realize they're still telling lies. They're just being more body about it. So a biblical worldview means that you're looking through the lens of Christianity as being the true lens through which everything else can be interpreted. And then you're making sure that every single thing in your story matches that truth, that you're never undermining that truth, that you're never uh, inadvertently leaving out what is true. So your characters can engage in any particular kind of sin that they want. But from a biblical point of view, we understand that if people engage in, say, X, Y, or Z, it's going to have a tremendous impact on their soul because Christianity And I believe this to my core. Christianity is now, has always been, and will always be the best way to interpret human experience. The reason Christianity is true is because it is the best explanation of who we are, how we got here, and how the world really is, how God designed it to be. So that's what we're trying to represent in our stories. The truth, as it really is, in God's design. The uh, that's really good, Zena. It's really good. I I think about that often. I think about the idea of uh, how does objective truth how, how how do represent objective truth in such a subjective reality? And it feels as though 
um, that's often the case that 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 we don't know how to best do that, and so we end up replacing <laughs> objective truth with just our own subjective experience. And so, in the end, you have this subjective reality that different people go through, and now there's no longer an objective truth that all people can respond to. Instead, it's just, well, this was my experience, and you can't argue with my experience, and therefore, it is now. It's moved from being just my experience now, and this is now my truth. Right. And and and, and the thing is about that, that doesn't make for good stories. I mean, when you think about some of the most compelling, provocative, interesting, enjoyable, um, long-lasting cinema, the, I mean, they all deal with universal, you know, universal themes that are like universal to the human condition. That's right. They're not. They're not. Um, they're not just captured in just that one particular moment in time, or just that one particular character's experience. They're universal, and and I think that's what makes so much uh, um, so much of compelling art is this idea that that the human condition. There's so many things about who we are as people. Like and I think you said it so beautifully, um, can best be explained. You know. Um, through Christianity and through the lens of a, you know, a, the 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 scriptures that that oftentimes we do ourselves as Christians we do ourselves a disservice by not leaning into that more, and and, right. I, and I and I know that and I, and so let me let me just go ahead and put the the um, the caution in here because we also don't want he, we also don't want people hearing us say this and think. Uh, uh, that what we're saying is they should go out and write sermons <laughs> and, no, no. and, and their movies. And oftentimes, though, but isn't that the problem, Zena, is that oftentimes that's how this gets translated. When, when, when Christians talk about writing about these eternal truths and what's valuable, the, the response is oftentimes, well, the only way you can do that is to, is to write something that is preachy and didactic yep. and oh. uh, right. It's my passion to uh, speak against that, by the way. Um, <laughs> so here's the, there's a couple of things here, Jimmy. Uh, bear with me for a second as I unpack this. So first of all, why does this keep happening? Why is it that we are now turning to this subjective truth rather than some sort of stance on universal truth? Well, it's because people don't know how to think well anymore. And we've been so confused in the marketplace of ideas by the, you know, this, we've been told that it's wrong, that we're being uh, dogmatic, that we're being, right now, Christianity is synonymous, synonymous with being intolerant and being bigots and being hateful. I mean, it really is because we've been told that that's what we're uh, basically promoting when we say that there is an objective truth. So there is a problem there, but, but one of my favorite verses in the Bible is my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. We don't know enough anymore to be able to articulate these things. And yet here's what happens. So even the most prolific artist that comes out of Hollywood who promotes this idea that, oh, there's no more truth, objective, it's all relative, in their art, they're borrowing from our worldview. You look at the, the reason stories work. The stories that work, the reason they work is because they're operating 
on a monotheistic worldview where there are universal objective truths. Because in those stories, the reason the heroes are deemed good is because whatever qualities they embody are good. Objectively, we can affirm that those are good things. Even a person who might tout privately that they are in an open marriage, for example, in a story, those people will write something where somebody that's cheating on their spouse, that's wrong. Well, how can you do that if it's relative? Well, you can't. They have to borrow from our theistic worldview to tell good stories. The only stories that are good represent things that Christianity teaches. The qualities that are good in Christianity are the qualities that are good in story and vice versa. Now, of course, sometimes... They can pervert these things and make good guys seem bad and vice versa. But nevertheless, there's always an undercurrent of truth. So, for example, Hannibal Lecter, one of the things that makes me so mad is, you know, in the sequel to that, they try to make him noble. Well, he's a disgusting, horrible, sick human being. All they really manage to do is make one particular aspect of his character good, which is the one noble trait that he has, which is some sort of nobility to not harm Agent Starling. Okay, that is a commitment that he made, and so therefore he will save her and he won't violate that. So really, they're still borrowing from my worldview to make that point, but they do not succeed in making somebody who eats people good. You know They're just saying this one quality of his is good. Does that know, make sense? Yeah. And you know what's interesting about that particular, I actually use that example a lot when I, when I teach about uh, truth and storytelling, because as much as I love Ridley Scott as a filmmaker, as much as I love Anthony Hopkins, as much as I love all the wonderful people that were a part of that project, that's that, that film in particular, Hannibal, the sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs is a great film. Hannibal is 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 a is a big fat lie. It tells oh, the audience. It, it it is it is a it is an attempt to um to convey to convey truth with a lie. And 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 what's fascinating is to know the background. Uh, so from the things that I had read back back in the day, if you remember, Jodie Foster turned down being in that film, and the reason why is because apparently her and Jonathan Demme worked hard to to uh to craft this Clarice Starling character um into a, a a really strong independent kind of feminist icon she was a str- fierce strong uh woman who was able to walk into this man's world and win she was the she able to have victory over the bad guys and um I guess without denying her feminine aspects, which is very right. important because she's still vulnerable and she's still very much a woman. So she's not just becoming a man. She is still embodying her feminine giftings. Yes. And apparently Tom, the, the original author of the novel, Thomas Harris, did not like that. Hmm. Uh, he was he was a he was not a fan of what Jodie Foster and Jonathan Demme did with the with the Clarice character. And so. His response to their performance was to write Hannibal. Oh. He, wrote, he wrote Hannibal, and he basically um, 
emasculates her, he denigrates her, he demotes her in terms of he makes her this this um, this uh, just flaccid, boring, one-dimensional. Like it's truly awful what he did to the Clarice character. She just becomes so uninteresting. She becomes so dependent on 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 Lecter, and so Jodie Foster said, "No, that's why Jodie Foster turned." It, you know, this is the story behind the story that mm-hmm. I've I've read and heard uh, a lot about. But, um, and so, of course, then Jonathan Demme declined. And so that's why they had to bring in Julianne Moore and Ridley Scott, because Anthony Hopkins had signed up right away to do it. And to your point, there's a scene in the film in particular that's, as we all know, in all the kind of films like this, there's always like a hero shot, right? There's a hero shot in every film like this where you, you can identify the hero of the film oftentimes, especially a, a visual fantastic director like Ridley Scott. He knows how to uh, manipulate the audience to let you know exactly what he wants you to feel in that moment. And the hero shot in this film is this deplorable, <laughs> sadistic, evil, um, you know, uh, character, Hannibal Lecter, who eats people and enjoys it and murders people for his pleasure. Um, rescuing Clarice because she's helpless, mm. helpless, and he's carrying her out, and he's carrying her like Superman carries Lois, and it's this framed shot as basically kind of walking into the sunset, rescuing her, and they're able to pull this off because when you have someone as evil as Lecter, the only thing you can do to to to, uh, to have the audience tolerate them is have someone more evil right so like the anti-hero you have a you have a greater evil that the, that this guy's bad but this guy's also bad he's worse right and so that's that's the other character i forget the what's his name played him the deformed but even why is that guy in that movie why is that guy so deformed he's deformed because lecter destroyed him he half ate him and the guy escaped and got away and all this kind of horrible stuff and i remember Walking away from that film, film going, why is wh- why do I want to watch this? Why is this a good thing? Nothing in this film made me think to myself, Lecter is a hero. There was nothing heroic about this film. And it, and it dawned on me, they're trying to sell me a bill of false goods. And it, it, mm-hmm. like this is the power of cinema. This is that movie was a big hit film. And 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 like it's, it's Ridley Scott, it's it's Anthony. There's 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 a lot of great things in the film, but the overall theme of the film is that it pays to be evil. Well, and to back to what we were talking about before, when I said that, you know, Christians violate truth in this way, well, this is a violation of truth. And it's a violation because you said yourself, they came to the story with a bias. They had an agenda. They had an agenda, and he literally destroyed Starling's character, Agent Starling's character, because that was his agenda. So he's not being honest about the truth. And anytime you approach any story with an agenda, you are violating the truth, which is why, going back to what we were talking about before, that's why Christians will resort to trying to preach and actually speak these messages into existence because let's face it, we want to get these messages across and that's a good thing. We should want that. We want to tell the truth, right? We want to tell the truth. So what we do though is we resort to words and preaching and agenda 
which inadvertently then violates truth. So it's this, this catch-22 that we've gotten ourselves into. And the reason we're in that is because we don't trust the power of story alone. We've somehow gotten away from being able to trust story because it's too nebulous in our minds. It's too vague. It's too, we can't control it as much, but man, we can control a speech. We can control a sermon. We can control every word and we can't control how the audience is necessarily going to take our story. But if we took Jesus's example, we would become better storytellers. Jesus was far less didactic than we are. He told stories. The Good Samaritan is an answer to a theological question. When the, when the Jewish guy said, who is my neighbor? Jesus didn't say, well, let me explain it to you in the form of a sermon. He told a story. And in that story, he reveals hypocrisy. He reveals violations of station. He reveals people with high characteristics, meaning they have been set up. They have all on the face of it. They have all the reasons to be the spiritual leaders of the community. And yet their heart is ugly, evil, rotten to the core. And then he flips it and shows a character who has the characteristics of being a dog in society, but their heart is good and noble and right. And we know that through action. And so he never actually says any of those things. He just tells the story. And when he tells the story, it speaks to our hearts in a way that the words never could. And in fact, we remember it. We remember the story almost in detail, and that's why it transforms us. So the truth is, if we could stop trying to preach and start crafting stories that have that kind of power, we would do more good for humanity and for culture than at any other time in society. But we haven't yet gotten there. We are still trying to preach. You, you, you realize that um, uh, people are passing the offering plate right now while they're listening to your sermon. Pre your <laughs> and I am preaching, but this is, the form, this is the format to preach in, not in story. <laughs> people are passing the offering plate right now. You are, you are, uh, you're getting at it. Hey, um, I want to talk about, this is great. I, I really enjoyed this. I, I want to talk about kind of what you're doing now. You, you, you have kind of pivoted a little bit in your career and you have uh, seen such a value in giving back. And I, and, I, and I know that you've spoken a little bit in terms of kind of how Act One has uh, informed you. And in a sense, you're kind of now kind of doing your attempt to give back the way people had invested in, in your career. And, and so you have this thing called the Storyteller's Mission. Uh, you have your own podcast called the Storytellers Missions Podcast. Now, what is the Storytellers Mission? Um, so the Storytellers Mission, it's to embrace the power of storytelling to change the world for the better. Yeah, and it's to also to equip storytellers to do just that. I mean, that's really why the Storytellers Mission was created. I wanted to help storytellers truly change the world for the better. But that meant helping them develop the craft. Because again, we're kind of stuck in the Christian community 
we have not yet fully realized our potential as storytellers. We're still relying far too heavily on message and agenda. And we need to be better craftsmen. We need to be better craftsmen. We need to be better artists. And what I found was that while like act one, again, changed my life and I'm still involved, as you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a mentor to the act one program each summer to be uh, an integral part of the writing community and the teaching that the students who go through act one today get. I'm so proud to be involved in act one, but act one gives you the best possible foundation to build on. And I truly believe that act one will give you the best possible foundation, but that implies that you need to build on it. And what I found as I myself would look for continuing education classes, the only place that I could get them was if I went and got a master's degree somewhere. And by the way, not all of those were even up to snuff. I knew a lot more than what the teachers at those programs were teaching. So that doesn't work. So where do you go when you have a really good foundation, but you still need to develop the craft? For example, one of my students who's taking my formatting as an art form class, um, because I now offer online classes through the the online platform, the, the website, one of my students is Susan May Warren. Susan May Warren is a three-time Christie Award-winning novelist. She's won a Rita Award. She's written over 50 novels. Actually, I think she's written over 70 novels, but with this particular publisher or something, I can't remember, but I know it's over 50 novels. She is so amazingly talented. And yet she is taking my class formatting as an art form because she wants to transition to writing screenplays. So she wanted to learn the format, but she also understood, because she's good, that there's probably some adjustments she would need to make between novel writing and screenwriting. And so she's taking my class. That's what I'm trying to do. Help people that are actually good, but who need to get better, right? Because there's a there's sort of a, a point at which we hit a wall and we still need to advance, but we don't know where to go. And if you do a search of all the classes, I mean, there are a lot, let's be honest. There are so many classes available out there, um, especially in writing. I, I was nervous at first. I thought, who's going to want to take my classes when there's all these people? You know, I'm never, I'm not a New York Times bestselling author. I don't have a huge movie hit or any of those things. And yet... There's not a lot of classes for people that are already good, but who need to go to the next level. And that's what I believe. That's the gap I'm trying to fill. The other thing is I've taught Hollywood storytelling tools. You know, I've taught screenwriters and novelists for years. I mean, not not four years. I mean, like for lots and lots of years, like 20 years, I've been teaching screenwriters and novelists my course called Hollywood Storytelling Tools. But I usually do it in a setting where I only have maybe an hour and a half at most. I mean, maybe the most I've ever had is when I teach at Act One, I have about two hours to teach a single course, which is great. It's great. It's a solid foundation. But the truth is, each of those courses deserves 20 hours dedicated. And that's what I get to do now through my platform is I get to fully 
explore it. I get to I get to watch films and then break them down and really show because I think the best way to learn is through examples and showing lots of examples and tearing it down and breaking it down. That's how we learn because again, that's a story and then therefore we take it in and we don't have to know the we don't have to know the language. We have to understand the principles and that's what we learn in those sorts of settings. So all that to say, I'm able to expand on each topic and really give people I think the tools they need to go to the next level. And I hope to actually bring Christians way further than we've ever been in the marketplace of ideas. I really believe we are on the cusp of something very important. The country is in a particular state where Christians' voices are going to need to be heard. But unless we can get to that level of artistry, we will be left behind and we will not have a voice in the marketplace of ideas except for among the choir and we don't want to be in the choir we want to be talking to the masses we want to be influential we want to be impacting culture and that's what i'm hoping to be able to do that's great and you, you do that through one, one of the things you do that through is your podcast and you, yes storytellers missions podcast and it's real it's a really great pot like you know, this podcast is is primarily designed for, I wanted people to meet, you know, my friends, basically. It's like, <laughs> I know so many awesome people like you and, 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 and other people. And I'm like, I just, I like to talk to people. I like to just let people get to know people, know what they're doing and, and be encouraged and know that as a Christian, as a Christian working in the industry, it is possible, you know, like it is possible to have a career in this business. It is possible to support your family working in this business, but also, you know, it's hard and you need to know both sides of things. And, and, and so the goal of this podcast is that just introduce people uh, to different people in the act one community. Your podcast is, is different. And that's what kind of fun thing about it is it's, it's, it's actually like, it's actually like little mini classes. So like, it's like it, you, you, you have all themed out, you have all these kind of particular topics and stuff you deal with. And so people can actually log, go to your podcast and they can actually look up um, specific things that you talk about in a specific aspects of storytelling, specific aspects of screenwriting. And you kind of give like a 20 or 30 minute lecture talk on um, on these different aspects of screenwriting. So it's a it's a it's a very um, uh, kind of necessary tool and you offer it for free. Yeah, that's right. And, and actually, they're always 20 minutes or less. Uh, so I, I really try to keep it short and sweet and it is craft oriented, but it's also philosophically based because one of the things I try to explore, if we're trying to write stories from a Christian worldview, we have to understand psychologically what human beings are like. We have to understand the world as it really is. And so I take those truths and then I incorporate it into the craft of writing and storytelling. And so we get to learn how to use that. And I try to keep them to 20 minutes so people can bite it. You know, they can take it and then go and implement it. And I'm really, really pleased with the response that this podcast has gotten. I've I've had several authors say, man, I was struggling with my novel. And then I listened to your podcast and it helped me to solve what was wrong. And now I just got a publishing deal which is amazing. Or I had actually Susan May Warren, 
I had contacted her thinking, hey, I just need some feedback. Is this kind of resonating with people? This is like maybe when I'm on episode like number eight or something way in the beginning. I needed to see if it was doing anything. And she said, Zena, I haven't missed an episode. In fact, I listen to your podcast every Saturday night in the bathtub. It is my reward. And then later she contacted me and said, TMI. I know. Isn't that great? TMI, Susan, TMI. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, but think about that. Like she is this multi-award winning author and she's listening to my podcast and that's her reward. Like, wow. And then later she contacted me and she said, I I don't do it in the bathtub anymore. I have to take too many notes. I mean, that's amazing. So all this to say, they're short, they're sweet, and yet they are rich. They're rich. And I try to unpack, uh, really problems that people are facing. And it's for novelists and screenwriters. I don't try to get hung up on the type of story so much as storytelling in general. So I, I really love it. I'm very passionate about it. Yeah. yeah. And I think people, I, I hope people do uh, tune, tune in. I'll, we'll, we'll definitely have a link in the thing for it and stuff, but it's a storyteller's mission, storyteller's mission podcast. The and, Storyteller's Mission with Zena Dello. And you can find it on the podcast app of your choice, or you can go to the podcast page of the website, which is just the Storyteller's Mission podcast. I'm not, that's too much typing, Zena Dello. Jeez, can you just say with Zena? Jeez Louise, why has it got to be Zena Dello? Man, that's a long. <laughs> I know, it's a pain. It is. I'm messing with you. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Um, all right, right now, here we go. Everyone listening to this podcast, all right? So you don't have to go over to her podcast to get this. She's going to give this to you right now, right here. Here (laughs) we go. I'm putting you on the spot, Zena. I want you to tell our listeners the top three uh, most common mistakes you see screenwriters making today. Okay. Ooh. Ooh, I love this question. All right. Um, and I'm assuming we're talking about Christian screenwriters, or do you mean screenwriters in general? You can go wherever you want to go with this. Okay. But I want the top three. I want the top three. Top three. Okay. Well, the first one that comes to mind, of course, and we've already talked about it, so I won't go into it, but it's when you approach a story with agenda. Uh, approaching a story with some preconceived idea of what you want to say and then contriving that story to try to make it so you can speak that is just a bad story. Now, that's not to be confused with the idea of theme, but I would say that most people don't understand the difference between agenda and theme, and that's a very important differentiation. So before you go on to the other ones, can you unpack that just real quick? What's the difference between agenda and theme, because I, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Sean Gaffney was talking about this and he said, you know, Pixar has you do a first draft and then they say in that first draft, you don't even think about theme. Don't even just, just tell the story. And then after the first draft, he said their policy is they then, they read it and then go, okay, so what's the theme coming from the story? So they, they believe in like the theme coming from out of the story, and then they go back to then the rewrites after that are where do we beef up the theme? And so, so we, so we, so you and I are in agreement. We talk about this a lot. Uh, any great screenwriter worth anything is obviously going to be dealing with themes, kind of like truths and, and concepts and ideas that are 
hopefully universal to the human experience. But what's what's the difference between that and agenda? Okay, well, for one, as you just pointed out, like Pixar said, it comes out of the story itself. So it's not something you're superimposing onto the story and then finagling the story to try to say uh, a theme is something you discover in the story. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize what I'm really saying here is that when you love somebody, you are willing to die to yourself. I didn't realize I was saying that in this story, but there it is. And boy, that's true. And that actually fits where I'm going. So I really think theme is something you discover, whereas agenda is something you force. Also, agenda is something where you ignore any evidence to the contrary. You will leave it out. You won't be open. You will make sure that the characters don't even consider those options because you know what they're going to say. Whereas when you have a theme, you're not afraid of others' opinions or contrary things coming up. You're open. You're open, but you're closed with an agenda. And the last thing I will say is that generally speaking, when you start with an agenda, your characters are not as real because your characters now become furniture pieces that you manipulate to place just so, so that you can do your agenda. So agenda becomes the end all rather than the characters and their journey and their experience being the focus, which then allows the theme to surface. So sometimes they're very, very fine lines. And yet those fine lines mean all the difference in the world. That's really good. That's, I, I, I like that. Um, I like that. Uh differentiation a lot okay getting back all right so okay so number two okay so number one problem is people writing an agenda rather than a good story that generally has a theme number two though has to do with the characters themselves and really story structure because a lot of people write passive characters And this is probably one of the hardest things, I guess, to really master in storytelling in general, is how do you have an active character? And by active, I mean a character who has a goal that they are pursuing and they are pursuing relentlessly over the course of that telling. Because think about what we do in real life. If we come home from a store and we want to tell somebody what happened, we don't say, hey, guess what I did today. You say, hey, guess what happened to me? We, in our real lives, we frame ourselves as things happening to us rather than us causing things to happen. And so this is just an orientation that we're really, really familiar with. We don't think of ourselves as the actors. We think of ourselves as the reactors to things happening to us. And so in story, it's just very easy for people to have characters who are only reacting to all the things going on and they become passive. This particularly happens when you have goals to pursue that are not concrete, that are not, uh, that do not present themselves as having concrete action steps to go along with them. If it's a nebulous sort of abstract goal, like 
Recently, I read a or I did a critique on somebody whose screenplay they wanted their character's goal when they finally were able to articulate it was to get back to feeling like they felt when they were a kid with their dad. And I'm like, no, that's not a concrete goal that can be pursued. That's passive. And it's a feeling. It's nebulous. It's vague. It's abstract. You need a concrete goal that is actually pursuable with specific steps. And so that's an area where commonly this happens. In this particular case, I told the client, I recommend that you change because what happens is the father character is killed and dies. And so then the character spends the rest of their time growing up, wanting to get back to that. I said, but what if you change that? Like they saw what the father was trying to do in the community. And so they take up that mantle. They want to be to those people, what the father was to those people. But at the end of the day, the only reason it worked for the father was because the father was in touch with God or whatever. He had a spiritual motivation behind it. Whereas this person is only using their own strength. And so they burn out and they have to understand true spirituality. Now you've got, but but now you have concrete action steps. Okay, if I'm taking up dad's mantle, what do I have to do? And that would solve a lot of the problems in that story because that character was just totally passive and a passive character we hate. So one of the number one things that I see in novelists and in screenwriters and mostly in the screenwriting or in the Christian community, because we often have goals that are not clear, concrete, solid ones, because we're developing spiritual themes, or we think we are. So we have these nebulous things. We just have passive characters who are boring and reactive, and it does not make for a good story. So that's a huge one. Here's, here's the acid test. If you're a person writing for the Christian subgenre, which, again, I'm with you, Jimmy. I wish it didn't exist. A good story is a good story, and it shouldn't matter. But nevertheless, that exists. So if you're one of those people, here's a test. If your main character has an ethereal or spiritual goal that can't be measured in some way, then you've got a bad goal. It isn't going to work. So here's what you need to do. You do the same thing in story as you would in real life. Let's say I'm making my New Year's resolutions and I decide, you know, my New Year's resolution is I want to be closer to God. Well, that's too nebulous because how can I measure my success in being closer to God? You can't. The way then for you to try to attain that possible goal is to break that down into measurable steps. Like, okay, in order to reach that goal, that means every single day I'm going to read one chapter of the Bible. I'm going to spend 10 minutes praying and I'm going to spend five minutes journaling about my experience. Well, great. Now I have three concrete action steps. Now, at the end of the day, at the end of the year, that may or may not add up to me feeling closer to God, but at least I can look back and go, well, how well did I do on this? And see, if I don't have those, I'm never going to, how do you even pursue? I'm going to get closer to God this year. How on earth are you going to go about trying to pursue that? 
There's no way to measure it. There's no way to test it. There's no, there's no, there's nothing to sink your teeth into. And the same is true with your character. So if you have a character that has some sort of ethereal or spiritual goal, break that down into concrete action steps that they have to do in the hopes that they'll achieve that, but they may or may not, but they can still measure their progress. What's the third thing? You got, you got one more for me? One What's more the- thing. Okay. Errors in character consistency. People simply have struggles in this area of making their character consistent and true and believable and credible. If you can't tap into the truth of a human person and understand why a person does what they would do or why they would make this decision or how they would truly honestly react when somebody else does X, Y, and Z. If you can't tell the truth about how that character exists in that moment, you won't end up with a satisfying story. So my advice to writers, screenwriters, and novelists is that you have to be in touch with the truth of humanity. And this is where, again, agenda gets in our way. If we already decide that this person is going to respond favorably when this other person starts preaching to them, then we're lost. Whereas if we are honest in that moment, like get rid of yourself, step aside and ask yourself, what would that person really do in that? So what would I do? If I was hurting and somebody came up to me and said, well, you know, Zena, here's why you're hurting and you need to do this, this, and this, I would be furious. I would want to strangle that person and it would be really hard for me to not curse them and walk away in anger. That's the truth because that is not what I need to hear in that moment. And yet they would violate that by having people respond favorably to these preaching moments, which we would never do in real life. So again, get out of your own way and ask yourself honestly, what would this character do? If somebody did this, how would they honestly react? Or if they were going to talk to their daughter about this particular thing, how would they really do that? How do they really feel about their daughter? What do they think about it? How much love do they have? So what is the most honest way to approach this scene? It's about honesty, honesty, honesty. And we have to be in touch with our own sin natures. See, a lot of times we don't want to admit the depths of our own depravity. We certainly don't want to tap into the truth of our own brokenness or vulnerability. We want to hide those things. But the more we want to hide or protect ourselves from those things, the more false we are then in representing the truth of the character and their choices and actions. So it's about character consistency and the writer being honest. Really good stuff, Zena. I, I really, I, um, I really like it. You, you, uh, you always have wonderful things to say. I always enjoy my time with you. Um, you're such a good friend. You're um, for people who don't know, uh, you can go to her website, storytellersmission.com. Is that right? Yeah. Storytellersmission.com. Zena. Thank you. You're awesome. I really appreciate everything. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you um, very much. I appreciate it. It's a great honor to be on the show. I like to close all of our podcasts by praying for my guests. Would you allow me to pray for you? Oh my gosh, I would love it. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just um, want to pause and thank you. Thank you for just who you are and thank you for 
just the reminder, um, as Zena reminding us of, of, of just the beauty of, uh, of a relationship with you and how, um, and how knowing you allows us to know ourselves better and how knowing you allows us to have empathy and know other people better and to be a better servant and to be a better storyteller. And so, God, I just pray right now for our audience that they would um, know you and by knowing you through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I just pray right now for Zena. I'm so grateful for her, um, grateful for our friendship. I pray a blessing upon her, um, just with all of her endeavors and everything she's got going on. Uh, God, I pray that you would um, watch over her and, and uh, give her opportunities far beyond her imagination. And um, we just love you and thank you for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com. Music